Hello, everybody. Quick note from Rob here. Artie, my co-podcaster, co-podcastian, co-podcastor, has unfortunately decided to go horizontal on a vertical slope here in Switzerland during the ski season, and unfortunately, as a result, has had to take some unpaid sick leave. So today we'll be captained by myself and the intrepid Michelle. Thank you. I'm Rob. And I'm not Artie. Welcome to Tradesplaining, where two guys, but not really two guys, one guy and Michelle try to make sense of international trade, business and expat life. I'm here because Artie is on sick leave and he's not going to be recording this week, but he will come back very soon. So don't worry if you get too annoyed at my own voice. I won't be here for long. But Rob, tell us what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about our winter vacation, obviously. We need to get that out of the way. I know there's a, there's a hot tub uh, situation we need to discuss. Then we'll try to get into some trade stuff. Pandemic, Facebook, Gruyere cheese. And then we'll also have an interview with Rachel Morargy. I don't know. I, we did record one. And of course, we'll, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So let's get to it. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 28, The Atomic Number of Nickel, a silvery white lustrous metal with a slightly golden tinge, and also part of my favorite band, Nickelback. But they're from Canada? That sounds fake. Canada's fake. Canada doesn't exist. <laughs> like the idea of Canada, just not the reality of it. Yeah, as a concept. I mean, I've been to Canada. Have you, though? Yeah, in 1986. And since then, we don't know if it's there. <laughs> we don't have any confirmation. We I don't think know. this is the kind of thing that... Joe Rogan would be probably working around right now. I mean, we're kind of on the same level. He has 200 million downloads a month. Pretty much the same. Yeah. Have you listened to it? What, the podcast, Joe Rogan? Yeah. Yeah. Is it terrible? Yeah, it's terrible. Of course it's terrible. I, I don't think I'm the target demographic for Joe Rogan, <laughs> is what I'm going to say. So um, normally we have a listener feedback segment. Yes, I have a listener feedback. And they were asking about you, Rob, because if you don't know, we're on TikTok. Go follow us on TikTok, Tradesplaining. We have a couple of TikToks up, and one of them, you weren't there. Let me reassure everybody, Rob did show up at the end. I was there. I was in the background. I think you were already gone when we filmed that. Yeah. Oh, you guys are doing TikToks when I'm not there? I think it was the last one, and you left. <laughs> that was your fault. We were like, we'll film another TikTok, and you went, no, I'm out. Okay, so Rob, tell us about COVID. When did you get it, and who do you blame? Yeah, I think this is the new game we're playing over the holidays. How did you get it? Whose fault was it? I blame M.A., of course. She got it one day before me on the self-tests. So it's her fault. It's her fault. And we, of course, then walked through everything she'd been doing. And we uh, tr tracked it down to eating a sandwich on a plane, stuck on a runway, without circulation of the air. And there was a person next to us who looked a little COVID-y. Looked a little COVID-y. <laughs> this, is, this is the sport now over the holidays. That's true. Everybody's blaming everybody. But you must have gotten it. I have never gotten Not that I know of. I haven't gotten covid and I thought I would, because I've been with a couple anti-vaxxers. <clears throat> it's always anti-vaxxers who, like, hug you. So if you didn't get COVID, what did you do over the holidays? Well, for New Year's, I went to a chalet in France. And look, the thing is, if you book a chalet with friends for New Year's, you're going to have to do this three months in advance. We did this, like, three weeks before. And all of them were terrible. <laughs> the whole reason we picked this one over the two other ones was that there was a jacuzzi here. And everybody was very excited about ringing in the new year in the jacuzzi. Awesome. Amazing. 
So first day we go, oh, we'll turn it on, see what happens. Usually it takes about like 24 hours to get the jacuzzi going. 24 hours later, it's cold. It's almost freezing. Okay, <laughs> it hasn't changed. It, it doesn't work. Yeah. And we figured out that it holds the temperature okay. of the water that you put in there, but it doesn't actually heat it up. Yeah. So you have to fill it up yourself. The good thing is we were ten, there were 10 of us, so yeah. we could just carry pans and do like a little pan, hot pan Boiling chain. Boiling water of, Yeah. To just <laughs> fill up the jacuzzi for a while. And? But then we got some very good use of that jacuzzi. It worked. I mean, the good thing about isolation that I did with MA when we had COVID was we got to rediscover some of our favorite brands of products from the U.S. Because we were stuck in Chicago, we had Nutter Butters, Chips Ahoy. One thing we didn't do while we were having COVID was drinking. I mean, actually, in a kind of optimistic mood, we did load up on stuff to drink that we didn't drink it. But recently, it's come to our attention that there's a there's a kind of an issue with bourbon drinkers. Apparently, bourbon drinkers get very chauvinistic I and know. only drink bourbon, and they have a collection of bourbons. And we've received a message and an article attached to it saying that we should diversify our drinking. But I feel like people do that with every type of alcohol. Yeah. Well, first like of all, we don't have a collection get. of bourbons. We just have the one bottle, <laughs> which then we just keep replacing. But also, I'm a pretty diversified drinker. You drink what's out there. We drink what's out there. We drink what's served. I mean, you can't really order bourbon in Geneva at a bar. No. You can order beer or gin tonic. Gin tonic. I don't know. What um, can you order cocktails at a Geneva Yeah, bar? you can order cocktails. Sure. What kind There's of bars do you go to? Really sk- <laughs> skinky ones. <laughs> I don't, they always have like weird names for their cocktails. Okay. Give me an example. Okay. So if anybody's been to Mr. Barber near Plan Palais... They have a great drink. So it's a bathtub and you put gin and then you have like whipped cream, I guess tonic, and a little rubber duck on top. Now, you would think this drink is called bathtub gin. Yes. It is not. It's called like porn star or something. Okay. For no reason. <laughs> so I think that's, so I think you're getting to the essential point, which is they're difficult to order for me. You can just go and say bathtub American. gin everywhere. Gin tonic or a canette de bière. Well, you know, you don't need more, to be honest. I guess also this is the time when I need to talk to you and update everybody on uh, on my bike. So last we spoke, it should be here by now, January 29th. It's uh, delayed until April. And so now I'm getting a little desperate. I feel like I need to travel to Shenzhen to identify and steal each component from an existing bike and manufacture my own bike. So actually, when Rob asks if anybody's stolen your bike in Geneva, next time it might be Rob stealing your bike. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I have your bike. If your bike's been stolen, I have it. Well, you know what might help you build a bike if you get all those stolen parts? Uh, no, I don't, Michelle. What would help? Maybe you could use a book. Okay, but I have to listen to it or read it or? Yeah, you normally you have to read a book. But in this case, you might be able to listen to it. What I've been reading lately is this book called Just Ride, A Radically Practical Guide to Riding Your Bike, which I thought might be useful to you. That sounds amazing. It's a really good book. And guess what? You can get it for free with Audible, who is our sponsor for this episode. I think we're finally going to get rich off this thing. Definitely. But only if you use the code audibletrial.com slash splaining to get an account. You get your first book for free and then you get one book each month. So go. So let me go immediately to audibletrial.com slash splaining. I think the principle is the really important part. We have a sponsor now. We have a sponsor. We have a discount code. We exist. We, exist. we are real, unlike Canada. Okay, Michelle, we're going to jump right into the news roundup. It's been a long time since our last podcast. 
but uh, some things are consistently coming through, so we'll go through those. Talking about the end of a pandemic boom, you're going to talk to us about the anti-work movements. We have the beginning of the end, potentially, for Gruyere cheese, and then, of course, China, and then finishing up with uh, the new kind of sanctions and how foreign policy is driving trade. So I, I think the biggest thing that I've been watching so far is that the, the pandemic boom for some companies is coming to a close now. I mean, we've been in this getting on for two years now, and some companies have, of course, had massive gains. We've seen that with technology companies primarily. And some, I think, are hitting a point where investors and consumers are saying, maybe we were over-exuberant in our belief in these companies. And two of them that, that are coming up in the news now are Netflix and Peloton, for instance. So Peloton, this is something where, of course, the, it went through the roof. They had uh, orders they couldn't fill. They massively ramped up uh, manufacturing. They had a ton of they push advertising all over the place. I mean, you could see it hitting uh, everywhere. And now they've had to declare losses that are coming up. They've had to roll back on manufacturing, and they're even up for potential acquisition. So, I mean, I blame Sex and the City. Sex and the City could have been the reason. Did you see that episode? No. The guy dies because he went to a Peloton. Like the main character, I'm sorry, spoiler for anybody, but it's, it was the first episode. Like if you didn't read it online, that was it. The guy dies because of it. Okay. And Peloton had to sign off on that ad. Oh, really? They most likely knew that it was going to be in there, but they didn't know in what context. And I think now they're trying to sue. But it, the harm is done. Mr. Big died because he went on one of those. They had to issue a statement that was like, well, his lifestyle wasn't super healthy. He drank a lot. He smoked. So, of course, he died. It wasn't our fault. Oh, really? So, yeah. No, no, it was a whole thing. Okay, but he actually got written out of the show for being a bad man. And Peloton can't be held responsible for that either. I think the thing is, if you have a Peloton already, you're not going to buy a dozen more. And so they wanted to become some sort of a streaming service where you have these, you know, new exercises dropping. And they still have to see whether that's going to be profitable. So they've got a massive rollback. Uh, Netflix as well is slowed in terms of growth of users. And we know, at least I know, so looking at my TV, there's been incredible proliferation of these services, Apple TV+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus, Sling, and so on. Sling. Sling. They're also wondering, uh, are they hitting the wall in terms of this model? They've raised their prices. Mm -hmm. And we also see that for tech firms, we know, you know Apple and so on are now looking towards possible regulation, Google, et cetera. And that could change their business model also massively. So... Could this be the end of this kind of pandemic over-exuberance? Let's see. And I think, you know, perhaps more importantly to all of us, Facebook now has fewer users. Which makes complete sense. I think it's interesting for me because a lot of the countries where, where I work, developing countries, Facebook is still super popular, but also for business. Mm -hmm. So people will friend me after a meeting. They also do social selling through Facebook, as we know. And so... I wonder, I, I guess it's basically Facebook will change, but they lost a massive amount of stock value, which may be affecting my retirement right now. Oh, no. I mean, I can see it happening. I, I think for buying something or for finding an apartment, Facebook mm. is great. I think that's why many people stay on it. Because of the scope of it. Yeah. And you kind of, you don't need to do too much to, to keep it up. I also used it, started to use it as a kind of cloud-based photo album keeper. But Are you out here trying to be an influencer? <laughs> I don't know how many. I probably have a few hundred photos. Usually every time I go on vacation to the U.S., I take a bunch of photos, curate them. Curate yes. them and then put them on Facebook <laughs> and then tag everybody. Yeah, exactly, exactly I like I used Facebook no. in 2012. No, my kids said don't tag me anymore. 
Yeah, of course, because they don't use Facebook that way either. So the other thing that's happening is inflation. I know we were kind of droning on about it last year, but while I was in the U.S., it hit the highest rate of inflation since the 1980s. And there was some, it was an interesting article I was reading. They were using the example of a $1 slice of pizza in New York City. So a dollar slice is a known thing. And suddenly it's hopped up to $1.50. Because why would you make it $1.07? So they see pressure on garlic, pressure on a bunch of other things in the supply chain, cheese as well. And this is an interesting kind of psychological aspect of inflation. When it starts, it starts. So people think, okay, well, I've, I can absorb it. I can absorb increases in cost. So you see, you know, see you, inflation tends to feed itself. So that's something I think we, we're going to now see, you know, the European Central Bank, the UK Central Bank, US Central Bank, Federal Reserve will, re will increase interest rates. They'll reduce the money available and that will have all sorts of effects throughout the economy. Another thing that uh, we've been taking a look at, which I think does have a trade, trade implications is the anti-work movement. So tell me, Michelle, what does this mean? So let me set the stage. You turn on Fox News, you don't know what's going on. Uh, why are you turning on Fox News? I don't know. Most okay. likely, you're to going to YouTube and going, that clip about that person who talks about anti-work. Doreen Ford was a person who went on air and talked about the anti-work movement. Now, if you watch that interview, it's really, really bad. And of course, everybody complained about it. But before that, the entire uh, movement on Reddit, on that subreddit in particular, was sort of talking about what would happen when the media comes up to them and asks them to explain what anti-work is. Yeah. And there was kind of a, a debate between people as to whether they would go or not. You know, could we explain this movement? And eventually they settled on, let's not talk to any of the media. But that's incredibly difficult to keep everybody on Reddit from going to the media. Yeah. And, well, Fox News was the first ones to break this and they got Doreen Ford to go on the air. So anti-work is basically the idea that you should get a bare minimum compensation without doing any work. I mean, it's not an idea that hasn't also seen some currency even in European voting. I think some of the Nordics had looked at the universal basic compensation. So this is just for being you. You get a few thousand a month. Even Switzerland did, but it didn't pass. It did. It did, was voted on here, right? Yeah, it was voted, yeah. but we, Swiss Germany it's, was not, okay. it was never going to pass. Okay. Uh, did you vote for it? I voted for it, yeah. Okay. But it's gaining a lot of popularity with the younger generation. Okay. Who are saying that they don't dream of labor. I, what's I your wish, dream job? I wish I came up with that. That somebody asks, what's your dream job? And they say, I don't dream of labor. Which is beautiful. So the distortion about it is young folks just lazy and don't want to work. Is that the, would that be fair? It's a distortion? Yeah. I think it's more that people don't want to be stressed out. Because nowadays, you get stuck in these jobs that you don't really want, but you need to survive. And now with the pandemic, everybody's sort of coming to terms with the idea that maybe you don't have to be that attached to your job. That maybe, first of all, you know, you should be able to survive without your job. And also, it shouldn't be the aim of your life, which is a lot bigger. It, this isn't about compensation, but it's more about, like, your life is not dedicated to your work. You could leave if you want and... It should be fine financially, and you should be fine sort of spiritually huh. to disconnect from it. I think that's the main argument. Yeah, and I think there's also some good arguments, and we've talked a lot about on the podcast how the deck is stacked against labor. So during the pandemic, that's slightly become less stacked, but remains stacked against labor. And one of the reasons is because people don't have the flexibility to go get training, to change jobs. And so this 
the universal basic compensation, I guess, is also there to say you will likely work, folks will work, but you won't be, as you say, tied to a job. You won't be searching for that paycheck. And you can take the time, you can take the compensation also to reskill and to increase your, you know, and to increase your stability and to get out of. It would be great to have people not be attached. Now the subreddit is going down. So maybe <laughs> that's not the way it's going to go. Now it's, no, it's blocked. You can't get inside. Oh, really? Okay. Well, to be continued, maybe from the sublime to the ridiculous, there's an interesting trade dispute in the U.S. And as a Swiss citizen, I want to hear your thoughts on this. A U.S. judge ruled on a case, and this was the makers of Gruyere cheese based in Switzerland, but also I think there's a small bit of France that's involved. They have uh, set up a geographical indication here. So there's certain requirements for you to call it Gruyere. You have to use even certain dairies. You have to use a certain practice and you have to meet certain quality requirements. And it's quite strict. And I was at a cheese store and a guy explained to me all this. It's rated on, it's rated on 20. So some things get thrown out. If, for instance, if you have any holes in it, it's out. He was selling me an 18 of 20. Supermarkets around 15, folks. Very so interesting. You can do better. So the, the guy just gave you the grade like that, or was there like a label or something? He didn't come up with a thing and then tell you like, yeah, it's an 18 out of 20. He said, yeah, I kind of, no, he didn't come up with the thing he didn't come up with, but he did come up with why well, it's an 18 out of ah, 20. okay. Yeah. Good for him. And I don't have any way to, he seemed like a, he seemed like a very honest guy. He was wearing overalls. That already makes it like at least a 15. So the dispute is this, a lot of German and Dutch producers are selling Gruyere, a cheese called Gruyere in the U.S. And the, those makers in Gruyere say it's protected trademark and that they're violating the trademark and they should be fined for doing that. And the judge basically ruled that this is not a controlled trademark because people have essentially been violating it for so long. It doesn't mean anything. That trademark is more protected in Europe where these things are taken a bit more seriously. But I, you know, you wonder what does this do to the underlying value of a Gruyere? I think if it doesn't come from Gruyere, then it's just sparkling cheese. It's just sparkling cheese. You can't be eating this It stuff. is not Gruyere. You might get poisoned. No, I think it's terrible, especially the argument of, you know, it's been done so much that you could keep doing it kind of feels terrible. I think it also, it speaks to a trade issue, which is how do you keep a product? How do you retain and build and retain value of a product? Mm. And especially a product that comes from, you know, from, from natural goods from a process, a rural process that's under pressure from industrial processes and those kinds of things. Exactly. That's the problem. More in other countries as well that, that will have to live with this precedent in the future. And also for those of us who work in the developing world, for not just food, but for other kinds of trademarks to be protected, it's quite important. I'm going to bring in one more point, which is that right now we're, you know, as we record, there's a continuing tension on the, the border between Russia and Ukraine. Russia has mass troops and so on. The reason there's a trade angle here is because the U.S. has also threatened the most drastic sanctions that they can, that they can make on the Russians. And these would be sanctions like they have put, for instance, on North Korea. And these sanctions go not just to, you know, you can't trade U.S. goods there, but you can't trade any U.S. services. You can't trade anything that has U.S. design in it. So what this means is no, almost no computer chips that are built in the West, almost no software, almost no kinds of engineering. This would be a, very, a real drastic cutoff between the Russian and U.S. markets, and in some cases, Western markets. So for instance, a lot of Taiwanese chip makers would no longer sell to Russia if this, is, if this kind of sanction is put in place. If we begin to use sanctions like this, this could have a massive trade influence. And what it could also lead to is the Russians won't be crippled by this. 
in the short term. In the long term, it could be difficult and they could be pushed even further to, to follow what I mentioned earlier, which is this separation. So we have an economic separation. They're going to start their own you know, chip manufacturing, start their own services businesses, start their own platforms, even more so than they do now. And I think it's, you know, for, for us to consider such a sanction could continue this process where foreign policy is really going far out ahead of trade. Whereas we used to think, okay, efficiency is going to be the thing, WTO, Geneva is going to lead the way. Since the U.S.-China trade war, we've seen that's no longer the case, of course, and no longer the dream even. And this could, you know, these kinds of distortions could, you know, add even more to what we've seen in terms of more and more protectionist policies. So that's really something to watch, more the signal that it would give. So we know the power of it, but also, you know, once you, once you do it, can you put it back? You know, can you, can you pull it back? Especially at a time when we need more global solutions. You know, we need, we're, we're more interconnected in terms of the world ending and it's, it's ending. You want a global solution that's interconnected? Have you seen the YouTube comments on Putin's videos? <laughs> the ones where he's making declarations these past few weeks? No. Everybody's like, you're too hot to go to war, hun. Don't do that. But if you go to any of those videos, that's all of it. You think that could, you think that, that, that could work better than perhaps U.S. sanctions? Maybe, you know, maybe the U.S. should like redirect all of their policy towards like having people just bombarding all those videos with love messages and ironic. It's the Internet. You have to. Yeah. It's the age of irony. Can irony stop? Can irony war? just stop, please? <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to stop a war. I, I doubt that Putin's going through those comments and going, oh, man, I didn't know that. That's a burn. <laughs> this brings us into the next point. We talk a lot about China on the podcast. When we talked to Rachel Morarji during the interview segment, her basic perspective is that the Chinese way of looking at issues is, is about balancing interests. And it's, it's a very long-term view of the world. And I guess that's, you know, maybe that gives us a slight new prism and a little bit better understanding of where things may go for some of these stories. So, for instance, they, we see now increasing talk about Chinese lending in Africa, very relevant to my work, because is China buying influence in Africa? The answer is probably yes. Are all countries doing it? Yes. When we, when we see them beginning to cap lending to Africa, beginning to slow lending to Africa, what does this mean? And I think what we see is that the, the Chinese were, were really accelerating in Africa, and they see a future there in terms of balancing their interests with Western interests. They feel like they've, they've now, you know, gotten to a point where the liabilities are getting high, where they're, you know, where they're getting heavily invested and they start to think, okay, well, maybe we need to moderate this. And I think we see the same in terms of the real estate boom ending. And I'm using air quotes, which you cannot see, but you may, I hope can feel as I'm using them, that as Evergrande starts to melt down, as they're not paying their receivables, as Chinese citizens are becoming overinvested and worrying about the drop in, you know, in value of their properties, I think the, the government is now trying to balance, again, interests between local governments, which need this for revenue, the value that it has for a Chinese citizen in their portfolio, but also the bubble that's, that's been created. So I think we'll, we'll continue to, to watch these developments. Many of them, I guess, are, are similar. One thing that's new is that they're running a very creepy Olympics. It seems totally deserted. And there's a bunch of like rubber bears and different like stuffed animal characters standing around. I think you've been watching Five Nights at Freddy's <laughs> and not the Olympics. It's like, it's like Olympics after a neutron bomb has been dropped and all the people died. Everybody's wearing masks. They're all wearing um, hazmat suits and 
Five Nights at Freddy's. That's what I'm saying. Is this what this is? Except it's a Chuck E. Cheese in, in Five Nights at Freddy's, <laughs> but it's kind of the same thing. That's the, the general idea. These are exactly the right characters. There are, there are like Chuck E. Cheese type characters standing beside the ski runs. I think, I think you've captured right now exactly what the Chinese Olympics are basically doing. Yeah, Five Nights at Freddy's. Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah. What is it a show? It's a video game that came out a while ago. Okay. It's very scary. And it includes Chuck E. Cheese. And includes kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese-ish place. And all the animatronics come and, and get you. I thought it was great because they had beer. Freddy, you're supposed to be on lockdown. Vanessa, I'm a material girl. Rachel Moraji is the founder of Dark and Light Consulting. She advises CEOs, global executive boards, and European politicians about how rapid technological change and shifting geopolitics are reshaping business strategy. Now based in London, Rachel spent over 10 years in China, most recently as the director of The Economist newspaper's corporate network in Beijing. During her decade as a journalist in China, she was a columnist for Reuters Breaking Views and Shanghai bureau chief for Agence France Presse. She earlier served as a consultant at Brunswick Group, advising Chinese firms on their global media strategies and multinational companies on Chinese government relations. Artie's old job. And before moving back to China in 2013, Rachel worked as a foreign correspondent for over two decades, writing for the Financial Times in London, Moscow, and Afghanistan. Rachel is a fluent Mandarin speaker who read, I guess that means studied, Chinese and history at London's School of Oriental and African Studies. So Rachel, welcome uh, welcome to Tradesplaining. Great to have you. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, how you ended up in journalism and what your what your trip looked like? I'm not a journalist anymore, but I was a journalist. I sort of bounced around a lot. And uh, I guess you've you know, seen that whole Google thing. And that was like the bottom fell out of the journalism market. So I went into consulting. I went into kind of geopolitical consulting. And I'm still doing a little bit of that at my own consulting company, Dark and Light. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm also studying to be a psychotherapist. Wow. I'm, I'm kind of right at the beginning. So I don't know, you asked me in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, we started the podcast during the pandemic. So we've been asking people, you know, over the last at first we said few months and then we said year. Now I guess we can say two years. But over the past two years with, with the pandemic, with other developments, how has it affected the way you look at the world? And, you know, maybe are you more, more optimistic, less optimistic? How do you see things? I think it's so, you know, we're going to talk about trade, but I, I feel like this insularity, this turning inwards, this move away from, you know, this incredibly globalized world was something that I was briefing CEOs about and talking about the rise of nationalism and how everything was becoming more insular. And that was before the pandemic. So this has just accelerated. You know, I was reading a piece in the FT with Gideon Ruckman and uh, and he was saying he'd had lunch with somebody in Downing Street who, who said, you know, do you think the Russians will in invade Ukraine? And, and Gideon says, well, yes, you know, I think it's a distinct possibility. And, and the Downing Street officials say, oh, God, you know, because it was about the only thing that could save Boris. And everything has become very insular. And we started seeing that in China, you know, drum beating nationalism, which I think started in 2013, and really reached a crescendo by the time we left. You know, you saw the same thing happening in India, we saw it happen in Russia. So I think this is kind of like that period at the end, you know, the Gilded Age. And we're in that interregnum between two eras. What the pandemic's done is it's, it's accelerated all those trends and brought them into sharper relief. You know, that's a very disorientating thing because uh, a lot of people say to me, oh, wow, your daughter's bilingual. That must be so great. She speaks Chinese. And I'm like, well, how is it great for her? She's nine. She's behind her year group. 
if you ask the teachers here whether her Chinese reading could be counted for her Reading Miles Award, they say no, only English counts. You know, she's surrounded by people who tell her that English is the best. She's expected to take oaths of loyalty to the Queen. She's just like her head spinning. But this world that we thought we were bringing her into and bringing her up for, I'm not sure it's going to exist when she grows up. And that's going to be quite disorientating for her, much as it is for me. I'm not sure that our children are going to have these kind of global existences. I'm not sure that they're going to exist in the same way. Well, I mean, I only took what, from what you just said. I, uh, I took, okay, English is important. Chinese bad, English good. Yeah, because Chinese is difficult. Well, Chinese is irrelevant in this life. <laughs> uh, it may be relevant England. again for her at some point. Yeah. And hmm. we're keeping it up for her. But it's, yeah, it's a sort of, it's, it's very disorientating. So, I, you know, I think I've probably been a bit more negative about the world, but it's hard to tell how much of that is me because our lives kind of, got thrown up into a blender at the beginning of the pandemic and they haven't really stopped worrying and how much of that is actually really what's going on in the world. So uh, that is a perfect segue, actually. So Rob and I, we we do talk a lot about China uh, on the podcast. Rob still maintains that we don't know what we're talking about, or at least like 40% of the time. But maybe, you know, what are some things that people like us, uh, you know, podcast hosts or others that get wrong about China? What are, or at least things that folks, that people should know a bit more about? I was thinking about this, and I think it's more about like the way you look at problems rather than specific individual things. So, you know, it's, it's going to sound very cliched, but in China, that whole idea of yin and yang is integral to the way that the Chinese view everything. So each problem contains the seed of its equal and opposite. So I think that if you're educated in the West, as I was, as we all were, you, you're you're taught to work towards a conclusion and you build your logical argument towards one conclusion. You're not trying to balance equal and opposite arguments and say, well, if, but, and then, you know. And I think when looking at China, you're looking at, I'm going to say 1.4 billion, but like 1,400 million individual people competing for individual advantage. So there's just constant contradictions. So I think people tend to view China through these extreme lenses of fear or admiration. So like even now with the China hawks, when they're talking about the China debate, it's like China's going to take over the world. And yeah, in some ways it will. I mean, I think there are real reasons to be wary about China in terms of trade. But, you know, I think the kind of fear of China tends to completely gloss over China's huge vulnerability. Environmental crisis, rural urban divide, huge Gini coefficient, wealth gaps, demographics, crackdown on the private sector, you know, the private versus the state. There's just all this other stuff going on. Meanwhile, the China op pessimists who were like, well, you know, they don't have democracy. It's like, if I read one more story saying, how long can China keep up zero COVID? It's like, well, indefinitely, as long as they'd like to. I mean, nobody in England is complaining that we have no vaccinations and we can be fined if we don't send our children in to get COVID. Like, like everybody's fine with it because that's what the government's told us to do. And there's nothing you can do about it. So you just like put up and shut up. And that's what everybody in China will do if they want to keep so zero COVID going for the next 10 years. But like, I think these, these articles tend to come from this, like, look how much they're getting wrong. And those things tend to kind of, everything gets exaggerated. So, you know, it misses the, the vibrancy, the private enterprise, all the stuff that's going on. And then the last thing that I think people kind of 
really don't tend to think about is just the historical perspective, the way China views the West. You know, we had, when I was there, Philip Hammond, he came to give the speech and he started it with the line, China and England have a long and glorious history with trade. And it's like, dude, you mean gunboats? That we like came there and blew shit up? And then we said, oh yeah, we've got drugs. Like, you know, this is how they see us. So when we talk about trade, the Chinese were like, well, it was a zero sum game last time. We lost. There's a huge narrative that's central to the legitimacy of the Communist Party that China was weak and it was broken by the West and the Communist Party reinvigorated it. So she uses this phrase, the great rejuvenation. Not, not a skincare routine. Yeah, like, like L'Oreal, you know, because, because you're <laughs> worth it. But it glosses over all the stuff that China did to itself. So like the Cultural Revolution, we don't talk about that, or the Great Leap, Great Leap Forward, or you know, anything that China might, that might be self-inflicted, we just kind of skip over that in the Chinese narrative and we talk about all the evil things that foreigners did to us. And we in the West only talk about the terrible things that China inflicted on themselves, and we never talk about the evil things that we did to them. And if you want to understand what's going on, you kind of need to get both of those narratives in your head simultaneously if you're going to look at what's happening with trade today. So I just wanted to jump in and build on that. My my sense, uh, at least when we're talking about tech companies, and you see it reflected in in news news articles and and literature and things people say. At least U.S. tech companies are able to put up, are willing to put up with things in China that they wouldn't necessarily put up with in the U.S. So if I take the example of the MBA, you know, bending over backwards to sort of reclarify a comment that one of the executives from one of the teams made, because China is actually its fastest growing market and one of its biggest. We take Elon Musk, you know, take the example of him. He's way more comfortable, I find, you know, with sort of reorienting the things he says and the things that Tesla does in China to to make to not make any waves, if you will. Whereas in the U.S., you see he's he he finds it quite easy to berate U.S. senators and, and things like this on Twitter and just sort of name call people to, to no end. Is this sort of true or is this something that we've concocted in our head? You're completely right. I think, though, that the ground is shifting. I mean, I think that, you know, if I was advising companies now, I would say you really need to look at your bottom line and say, well, you know, if you're a German car company, where does my growth come from? If I'm asked to choose to calm down on the pro-China or the pro-US line, which am I going to do? And you need to know that now, because at some point it could be Xinjiang, it could be the NBA, it could be it could be tech sanctions. China, you know, one of their, their big policies at the moment is it's called dual circulation. And the slogan is basically it just means, you know, they want to have a circulating economy that is dependent on themselves. They want more domestic consumption. They want a domestic ecosystem. I wouldn't say that they're going to like Galapagos themselves and completely wall themselves off. But they basically don't want to need the West for very much. And they're trying to set up their own standards. They're trying to set up their own technical system. So, you know, last year's European Chamber report said, basically, if you have manufacturing in China, you need to have a tech team in your headquarters already now that's looking at what happens as these systems bifurcate. So you and you see when you say bifurcation, you see almost two economic system development. We also hear about this. There may be two sets of standards, two sets of trade regimes, two sets of even two sets of climate policy. So, you know, how how much will it bifurcate? I mean, I think you've already got two tech systems, right? You've already got kind of two technological ecosystems. I think 
everything from standards for new energy vehicles through to railway gauges, they'd like to have Chinese standards. Now, is that going to be doable? So naively, I would think there's so much money to be made here. Are people really going to leave it all on the table by saying, I'm going to move all my manufacturing out of fill in the blank Shenzhen and, you know, I'm going to start relocating it into New Jersey or Staten Island? I think because of the pandemic that there's a real, real understanding that you've got to shorten supply chains. You can't be in a situation where everything comes from China. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's Mexico for the US or maybe it's the US for the, for the US. But I think, you know, I was just looking at something, who were the big winners? So it's Mexico, the Netherlands, Vietnam, Malaysia. Like it's the second tier company, countries that were open that have picked up some of the, the trade as these supply chains have, have shifted slightly. I don't think anybody is going to want to be dependent on one country because just look at that thing with the ship that ran over. Uh, ever given, yeah. yeah. This just in time supply lines. That Including my bicycle that's still still not arrived. Somewhere in the Suez Canal. <laughs> I, I wish, you know, the Suez Canal thing is cleared, but my bike still is not here. It's kind of a sore subject, but at least we, we, we don't have to correct the script every month. I we're still don't have a medicine cabinet. We're suffering here. Yeah, we're suffering out here. We really are. My hair is my hair is suffering. So we we've read quite a bit on how the financial weakness or the the financial weaknesses of of Evergrande is a sort of the canary in the coal mine and the first step in the collapse of the Chinese model, quote unquote, if you will. So you've seen a lot of hawks, you know, sort of hopping on that bandwagon for a while. Is this how much truth is is in that? Is is Evergrande a sign of things to come? Uh, is it true that you know the the real Chinese real estate, like many other Parts of the economy has been propped up by lots of easy money. And no, I'm not describing the Western financial markets. But So to be all kind of yin and yang about this, the answer is yes and no. Evergrande is it's the tip of the iceberg. This hasn't come out of nowhere. 25% to 30% of Chinese GDP is property. You know, when I talked about the vulnerabilities of the Chinese economy, one of the big ones is demographics. There just aren't new people to move to cities and move into all these new houses. So, like, at some point, the speculation around this prop these property bubbles is going to, you know, hit a wall. At the same time, people are always going to want to move to Shenzhen, Shanghai, Beijing, you know, the Chinese big cities. In the time that we lived there, like, property costs just were spiraling because these towns were booming. So in these big Chinese cities, you're still going to have robust demand for property. But, you know, all these kind of cities of a million, two million people that have endless tower blocks, there's going to be no one there to live in them. And yeah, that's a huge problem because local government revenues are dependent on land sales, which are dependent on property developers. At the same time, this story about the health of the Chinese banking system and bad debt at Chinese banks has been going since 1998. I was a cut rookie reporter, and this guy called Gordon Chang wrote a book called The Coming Collapse of China. You know, it didn't happen. The last five-year plan, it's dual circulation, which is all about making the Chinese economy more resilient and more inward-looking and more focused on domestic consumption and tech. And then the other thing is common prosperity, which is dealing with these urban-rural divides and this wealth inequality. As so you just go in, like everybody just forget the other thing that people forget about China is like, it's communist. That means we don't care about shareholders. You are capitalist running dogs. The government's going to care about consumers, about suppliers, about cement plants. You know, they are going to care about lots of things as Evergrande deflates. I think they're going to try and organize a deflation. But this incredibly speculative property bubble 
which has been going for since the 90s, you know, this isn't a sustainable way to run an economy. If I could just build on that, then what about the argument that this is a that sorry to use this phrase I, I never thought I would, but what is what about the argument that this is a job killer or it's going to stifle innovation? Because won't the next Jack Ma want to come to the U.S. or to the quote unquote West to next start the next Alibaba? I don't think there is going to be a next Jack Ma. You know, it's like talking about the Industrial Revolution. China's kind of had that first phase. There is no next Jack Ma. There's lots and lots of you know, James Dyson type people. There's going to be people who innovate in new energy and and semiconductors and battery technology and all kinds of stuff, but nothing on the scale of Alibaba. You know, that's already happened. Is it a job killer? It's a real danger. Yeah. I mean, one of the big contradictions is this tension between private business and the state. And what China has done for years is just kind of allow private business to innovate so when I first started, camp, I was covering finance for a while. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk at the time about how it was regulated. They had six people in the central bank, six guys for a country the size of China, because they just, they don't regulate. They let everything go. It's a free for all. And then they walk in and say, right, you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, you're dead. We're shutting you down. We're done with this. And that has always been the Chinese system. Yeah, it's a really big danger because the private sector generates the new jobs. The state sector doesn't. So, yeah, that's another one of these things. But if China goes too far, the way they've always done it in the past is just take the brakes off again. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think all these things are a big risk. But the big thing that's happening in China that people aren't talking about is demographics. You know, I, I think... China China's never going to allow immigration, ever, because they've seen what's happened in Europe and they've seen what's happened in the US and they think it's destabilizing. So then will, do you think that they'll make the, the same type of decision that Japan has made? So they've just sort of accepted the fact that we want it to be, quote unquote, Japanese. And so we're willing to live with the consequences of an aging population, slower growth, et cetera, and this lost, lost decade. They're, they're going to want they want robots instead of people to do these jobs. So it's like innovate your way out of this problem. I mean, one of the other big things that never gets talked about, 50%, if not higher, if not 60% of Chinese kids do not graduate high school. They have a massive population of ill-educated people. That's hugely destabilizing as you innovate, like, and you say, right, all these things can be done by machines. And, you know, they've got a lot of challenges, but they're not necessarily, you know, they're not just the ones that people are talking about that are in the headlines. So... No, I, I don't think that they would ever allow immigration. It's just, it's not a culture that, well, it hasn't really done it since the Tang Dynasty. And the last, you know, when you did have a lot of foreigners in China, it was a very bitter experience for the Chinese. So I, I think that they're, they're not, you know, my daughter is very upset that she can't become Chinese because she's like, I don't really want to be British. I don't like British people. And I said, well, you could try being American, but you may not like that either. She's like, no, but I want to be Chinese. And I'm like, well, sorry, dude, because you're not ethnically Chinese. So they, they won't give you a Chinese passport. It's, it's, it's not an enlightenment society. It's all about bloodline. So maybe we go to what's the so-called fun part of the interview, if you're, if you're uh, game for that. So, so Rachel, you mentioned you're, you've lived a lot of time in China. You're back in rural England or kind of semi-rural. And, you know, we, we often talk to people who've lived abroad and they've they had to look back. So in your case, what's it been like? living abroad, looking back 
at proceedings in, in England or in the UK. And what did you have the most trouble adjusting to when you went back? The UK is really insular, you know? I mean, also, I'm not, what would be the equivalent? You know, I've moved back to Madison, Wisconsin. I'm not even in Madison. I'm not even in a college town. I've moved back to like, you know. Staten Island. Yeah, like some, I, I'm in a village of 3,000 people. That's you know, a low blow. So I didn't move from like Beijing to London. So there's like a, a kind of urban rural culture shock going on too. But you know, when I when I was working on the China thing and British politicians used to come out, I was just astonished at how little they knew about China and foreign policy. And I'm like, God, these are the, these are the guys on the Parliamentary Foreign Policy Committee. These are the guys who were supposed to know stuff. And I think just for a really long time, Britain had an empire. It died its last gasp a long, long time ago, but in the popular consciousness, it didn't. And like, there's still this idea that, you know, we're somehow the center of, of something. You know, that's what the whole Brexit thing was about. So yeah, I mean, that, that was what I felt looking in, looking in and then coming back. We had to move my daughter out of her first school because of racist bullying about mm. people with slitty eyes. She's white, by the way, like she looks not even slightly Chinese, but she came in with like broken English and Chinese table manners. And yeah, it was not fun. Okay. So we've, we've kind of mentioned you speak Chinese. What was the funniest gotcha moment you had when people didn't know you spoke Chinese? Did you ever just eavesdrop on a conversation and hear something you shouldn't have? No, although what I did have was like, people would be like, oh, say something in Chinese. So I had my Chinese sentence, which was, which was a chat up line, still the best chat up line I've ever had from anyone. The answer was no, which okay. I should just say before I translate this. Please, yes. Hi, hey, baby, do you want to make, do you want to do it stealthily in the swimming pool? Quite- so like, if people would be like, say something to me in Chinese, and I'm like, well, it, it ought to at least be funny. So I taught quite a number of my university friends how to say that. Start a diplomatic incident. In Geneva, we get our bike stolen a lot. It's one of these sort of rites of passage for most people who who are sort of transplanted into Geneva and also sort of Swiss nationals themselves. Is there any? Have you ever had your bike stolen? And if not a bike, what's the sort of weirdest thing you've had stolen, or you know, in I, I China or elsewhere? It's got an opposite story, and it's one of the reasons I like China. So, in China, bikes do get stolen a lot, but not shitty bikes. And I never had a good bike. I made a point of having like the world's worst bike that way it wouldn't get stolen. But I went through this phase before I left China of being really absent-minded and I left my phone in a cab. I left my wallet in a cab. Like I just kept leaving things in cabs and cab drivers kept phoning me up and driving them back to the door and saying, no, I can't take money for you for it. It's the right thing to do. Or leaving them at the local police station and with a note. Like, yeah, like people were really good considering how little they earned. And that's actually a big deal in China because your whole life is on one app. I think it's hard to explain to anyone Western how much you can do on your phone. Yeah, I mean, the podcast is scientific. That's the one thing we know. We've always maintained that. So we, and we we have a data collection, rigorous data collection about favorite kebab situation. So for you, what is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And that's obviously the answer is going to be Parfum de Beirut. But in case you don't have a favorite in Geneva, what's your favorite kebab globally? Globally, I miss, I, I didn't have a particular store in Beijing, but in Beijing it's kind of, they're, they're shish kebabs and they're just called chuar, which means stick. And like, 
there's actually a great Chinese character, which is just a stick with blobs on it. And like, that means kebab place. Cause it's what, what else would it be? And, um, like, yeah, every corner store has a chora place and it's cheap and you go and drink beer and yeah, there, there are many things I miss about China. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end. So Rachel, thanks a lot for taking some time to tradesplain with us. Is there anything you want our listeners to go and click on and see about the stuff you're doing? Anything you've written, anything you're a project, something they should be? They should. I'm going to link to this podcast on my LinkedIn page, which has basically been dormant for the whole of the pandemic. And this will like kickstart it because I have done a bit of consulting work this year, but I just did not have the bandwidth to publicize it. It's, uh, yeah, starting again. Fantastic. We'll be, we'll say we were there. We were there. Trade explaining and all Trade that. Ex- with the first exclusive interview. Okay, that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or anywhere else. As you know, we've gone global. Real estate is extremely, extremely important to us. Now we see that real estate can also be overpriced in the virtual world. So you can create your online meta store. And you can even make everything leopard print, the walls, things can float. But to do this, however, you have to go to one of these guys that has created a virtual world and buy up a piece of real estate. And there are now agents who buy the stuff. Of course, there's always agents. (laughs) There's always the agents. Agents are jumping in there. And apparently, you know, with these agents, investors are buying them, expecting people to come in and and buy them up. One of the people providing such real estate is the guys that brought you Second Life. Yeah. Well, they know what they're doing. So you, you want to get out ahead of this. But some of the things that they've, they've mentioned in, in terms of value is apparently that those, those that are makers of, this, of, of these virtual worlds are making them limited, that apparently they offer services, you know where to go, you know where to get to. And they give examples like, you know, major luxury retailers are going to them. Now I can't afford a place in multiple dimensions. <laughs> Would you buy a piece of virtual real estate? No, absolutely not. What are you going to do with it? I think it's fantastic. You know, one of the things they mentioned is it doesn't have to obey the laws of physics. Yes, but you do, though. I can do that in The Sims. Somebody needs to explain this to me because... Yeah, why? Yeah, and then I'm thinking like, okay, guys with money are going after this. I was like... That's because they have too much money. I feel like I should get in behind this. They They have too too much money and they don't know what to do with it. It's the same with NFTs. It's the exact same. So NFTs, non-fungible tokens. We were definitely considering those for uh, trade-splaining merch. Yeah. How how is that going? I know you've looked into this. It's probably not going to happen. What? Because I had a terrible experience with NFTs over the holidays. So I have a cousin who's really big into crypto. This is the way it always starts. Yeah, I have a cousin, <laughs> friend of a friend, really big into crypto, all that kind of stuff. Crypto bros aside, you think the perfect present for Christmas is something to do with crypto. Now, you're not going to give them like Bitcoin because, first of all, if I it's buy expensive. it like a week before, it's going to change prices. So like, what do I do? Imagine that you show up to, to, to the party and you go like, well, it was worth a lot when I bought yes, it, but exactly. like that was not worth anything anymore. So crypto is out. But what you can do is give them an NFT. Now, I have no idea how these works. When I get into this like three weeks before, I don't know what's happening. I know there's monkeys involved. It's basically a pic- it's like a picture. Oh, yeah, it's a picture. It's, a, okay. they, it's basically like a contract to a picture. Yeah. It's kind of like if something only is I in a museum, so other people can see it. But only I can. But only you can say is your, it's yours. I mean, it's been a huge deal with memes and all of that stuff. The problem is we've seen them all over the news, but you don't know what to do with that. You need to get a wallet. You need to get 
Well, in this case, it was Ethereum, but you, you can get different NFTs for different Bitcoins. Now, which one do you get? Like, what's the hype thing going on? So you have to get on Discord. Yeah. See which ones are good. See what which ones are terrible. Discord is like a chat okay. engine. And you can get so many different ones. Well, now I'm trying to get the monkeys. The monkeys are outrun. There's no more monkeys. Apparently monkeys are so last year. You can get polar bears. You can get, yeah, there's a bunch of different ones. But then there's so many on Discord and you get bombarded with these people who are trying to sell you these images that make no sense. Like what would be a good one? Like a, How do you know what a good like one my is? My brother's into Green Bay Packers. Could I get an NFT Green Bay Packer helmet? Probably. Yes, if you get on Discord and you look it up, I'm sure you'll find one. There's probably like different helmets of everything. But then you don't know which ones are good. Some of them, they don't reach the level. And so they fold. And so they don't, no longer exist. So you have your image, but it's worthless. Because it's not. Because NFT. the company it's does. Not, it's not an NFT it's anymore. It's, it's, it's now not fungible. What did you get with it then? Did you get So I NFT? got an NFT. It's in my NFT wallet. The problem is anybody can give you NFTs. They can put an NFT in your wallet without your consent. Lovely. You would think so. But yeah. it turns out that those are infected with viruses that steal your NFT wallets. It was three very stressful weeks. I don't know why anybody gets NFTs. Okay. Honestly, next time I'm just going to like draw a picture of a monkey and like hand him the paper and be like, here, <laughs> it's non-fungible. I'm never going to make another one of these. <laughs> Sign up to my Discord, everybody. All right, everybody. So we've got we've done some important learning. Get out there into Second Life. Buy yourself a leopard skin floating piece of real estate. and Or a monkey. You put your NFTs there. I don't know. We don't Unclear. Know. <laughs> <I> don't <know. laughs> Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 28, brought to you by the band Nickelback, by Underpowered Hot Tubs, and of course, the end of the Peloton bubble. We'd like to thank our guest, Rachel Morarji, for talking to us about all things China and giving us a phrase in Chinese we can use in case we want to suggest naughty naughtiness in the uh, pool. That's right. And we can't thank me this week, but we do thank Artie and hope he recovers very quickly. From his sick leave. Uh, unpaid sick leave. From his unpaid sick leave. Which might be paid very soon, thanks to Audible. Just go on audibletrial.com slash tradesplaining and get any book of your choice for free. You get one month free trial. If you don't want to do that, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. As of like two months ago, please give us five stars it takes literally 30 seconds we got to be on the same level as gruyere <laughs> 18 out of 20 you can also follow us on twitter at tradesplaining and instagram trade.splaining and like i mentioned tiktok and of course if you're uh, of my generation you can email your questions or comments to us at trade.splaining at gmail.com that's trade.splaining at gmail.com and folks remember listen responsibly 